You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Have you ever wondered what holds successful democracies together? Jonathan Haidt says it is social capital which means extensive social networks of high levels of trust. Secondly, strong institutions. And thirdly, shared stories. Social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories. Unfortunately, over the years, social media has weakened all three of these. Height, writing for The Atlantic, wrote last year an article titled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, subtitled, and Why Things Are Not Going to Change. He writes, quote, In the early incarnations, platforms such as MySpace and Facebook were relatively harmless. They allowed users to create pages on which to post photos family updates, and links to the mostly static pages of their friends and favorite bands. In this way, early social media can be seen as just another step in a long progression of technological improvements, from the postal service, through the telephone, to email and texting, that helped people to achieve eternal goal of maintaining their social ties. But gradually, social media users became more comfortable sharing intimate details of their lives with strangers and corporations. They became more adept at putting on performances and managing their personal brand, activities that might impress others, but that do not deepen friendships in the way that private phone conversations will. And so now... The question really comes down to, how well do you really know people? How well do people really know you? Sure, they might see comments you make on Twitter. They might see pictures you post on Instagram. They might follow you and listen to your stories and other social media platforms. But let's be honest, those are curated. Those are heavily manicured realities of expressing what you want people to think of you as. And as a result, many of us in watching such stories compare our lives to such realities and think, man, I fall fall short of that. I sit in traffic all day. My coffee is not wonderful. My job is not amazing. My outfit is outdated. And my budget, well, it's lacking. But you, you seem like you're winning. Once the like, retweet, and share buttons were created and the algorithms were changed from posting what was most recent to what was most popular, everything changed by 2013. This new model encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their preferences, but by past experiences of award and punishment. 
You learned of what you would post that would be then retweeted and shared with others. And you also learned what you post would be vitriolically handled and downplayed and diminished by others. And you saw how others were treated and punished accordingly. One of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, quote, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon, end quote. The result, we now know great division. The social media algorithm gods keep handing us material that confirms our bias with no real interaction with opposing ideas and views. We have caricatures of people on the right or the left of us. We say we know what they are like and what they believe, but we don't really know for we've actually never talked to them, only how they've been characterized to us. And we have our prophets of information. They tell us what we're to learn and to believe. They give us our talking points for the office. And we're off to evangelize the good news of that commentary in our society. We consider ourselves educated. And truthfully, that's sometimes the last thing we actually are. Meanwhile, people are dehumanized as we speak of others as if they're not real, with no real thoughts, no real feelings or relationships, just others to take on and put down for being oh so stupid. The question is, are there really any alternatives in the world, at least in our own country? Is there any place where someone can go and be with people who don't look like them, who don't make what they make, who weren't educated like them, who maybe won't vote entirely like them? and still get along with them? I'm happy to report, friends, the answer is a resounding yes, and the place I speak of is called the local church. The local church. And what we're gonna see today in our Bibles in the book of Galatians should not only give us hope for life to come, but also hope for our lives today as we live with one another, with great diversity, and yet, Encouraging me with great unity. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. If you're joining us for the first time, you've been missing out, but we're happy for you to join us. We've been working our way through this letter by Paul the Apostle, once a persecutor of all things Christian and church, now, surprisingly, of which he is the most surprised, a believer in Christ. An evangelizer, a gospelizer, if you will, declare of the good news of the resurrected Son of God. And he's banked his whole life on it. A man who was once a Pharisee is now taking on Pharisees head on and showing them by their own handling of the Bible why their handling of the Bible is wrong and what the true understanding of God's word is. And it has been encouraging to see as he continues in Galatians chapter 3. Now, if you're just waking up, perhaps from a nap, and you intend to return back to one, let me give you the main point before you do so. Here's the main point for this morning. Christians are united and related to one another because of their shared faith in Christ Jesus. I think we even have that there for you. Christians are united and related with one another because of their shared faith in Christ Jesus. 
to make sure we understand our, get our bearings here, go back to Galatians chapter 3. In verse 15 through verse 18, he talks about how the law, the law of God, going all the way back to the Old Testament, was given to Moses in verses 15 and 18. It did not invalidate the promise that God made to Abraham. It wasn't somehow reversing it or trumping it. It was simply for another purpose. Verses 19 and 20 of Galatians 3, the law was given through a mediator to provoke transgressions, to show us our reality of our sin. Verses 21 and 22 of Galatians chapter 3, the law was not contrary to the promises of God. It was given to point to Christ. And then finally in the verses 23 through 25, as we also saw last week, the law was essentially a babysitter until Christ came, a, a tutor, if you will, to help us. But now that Christ has come, we do not need it to function in that way. If you would, follow along with me as I read to you, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Paul, continuing his writing, says the following. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Two lessons you're going to learn this morning from this text. Lesson number one, you are now sons of God, verse 26 and 27. Secondly, you are now united through faith in Christ. You are now united through faith in Christ. So let's first of all we'll go back to verse 26 and 27. You are now sons of God. You can really see here in the verse 26 and 27 what he's talking about here. He talks about, first of all, being sons of God through faith. He's really talking about a spiritual paternity test. He's getting to answer the question, who's your father? Whom do you come from? And he describes it here as one of adoption. This description here says you are all sons of God. What's significant is sort of how this comes through. It says in Christ Jesus... Through faith, it's sort of like the bookends, and in the middle of this, in the English Standard Version I'm reading, you are all sons of God. Notice the inclusive language here. You are all sons of God. You have to understand the significance of this statement. The context is that Gentile Christians, which most of you sitting here this morning are indeed Gentile Christians, and by that I mean you're not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're in the, New, in the language of the New Testament, you're a Gentile sometimes also known as a Greek. You are a Gentile Christian. And what they're being taught by Judaizers, these people who believe that they were better than the people who were not Jewish people, was that they were kind of, if you will, second-class Christians. They did not have with them what others had. They did not have a genealogical ancestry back to people like Abraham or Isaac, people like Moses Instead, they have other people they're related to. But Paul is saying here, you are all sons of God. This is significant because it would mean that they're not known because of the fact that they're circumcised or not circumcised. 
as if that would somehow make them spiritual siblings, or at maybe at least, at least just cousins, if you will, in the faith. He says, no, no, you are all members of God's family. He's talking about what the Bible describes as the doctrine, the teaching of adoption. Friends, adoption is the declaration by God, mine. That woman, that man, mine, my child. They belong to me. Which is a radical statement if you consider it because John 3.16, a text we read not many Sundays ago here on Sunday morning, described how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And yet here is this phrase about all being sons of God. So you're like, well, which one is it? Well, he has one true son, Jesus Christ, God the son, but then he has a bunch of other children that he has adopted. And he has adopted, as we see there, through faith. The significance of this should not be lost on us. This is why as Christians, overall, we are pro-adoption. Because <laughs> if we were not, we would be in trouble. Some of you know what this is like personally in your family. You were adopted. You maybe not were born into that household biologically, but you were adopted legally. In our home, our home is three sons, two biological, one adopted. They are all our sons. They're all inheritance. They all get the inheritance of our possessions, which is not much. <laughs> but nevertheless, equal share, full distribution, all theirs, not depending on biological ancestry, but based on the declaration, all three of my wife's and my sons are our sons. We think of them equally the same. We treat them accordingly. Friends, we think about the doctrine of adoption and the declaration being made here in Galatians 3. He says this in verse 26, the significance of this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. I like how the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, Dated document, it goes back to the 1600s, but nevertheless, follow along as I read this to you as it explains the adoption. All those that are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put on them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for, and disciplined by him as by a father yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Friend, this is why you and I, with such confidence, go to God in prayer and believe he hears us and will answer us according to his will. This is why we pray as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. 
This is profoundly important, and I want to be very clear what this means and what this does not mean, because sometimes this can get distorted in some people's ears. So let me explain what I mean to do here by offering clarity. It is not uncommon at times to hear people be invited to go to churches, have conversations with other Christians, perhaps even reading their Bibles, and have such individuals explain to them about a relationship with God in such a way as if they had been adopted by God by simply the fact they had been created by God. To be made in the image of God is not the same thing as to being a child of God. I say this because while every person here today is invited into a relationship with God, only those who put their faith, as it says here in the text, verse 26, only those who put their faith in Christ are the sons of God. And only those who are therefore the sons of God have access, have confident relationship that when they cry out to him, he obligates himself to answer them as a loving father would. As we see, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, that love sometimes comes in the expression of discipline. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves like a loving father does a child. I'm always concerned for people who self-identify as a Christian live just unapologetically and unrelentingly in the world, in sin, and seemingly have no consequence from it except natural consequence from the world. It would give them great reason to suspect whether or not they really are a child of God, whether or not they really were ever a Christian and put their faith in Christ versus just sort of prayed a prayer or said something, raised a hand, did something rather mechanical, but never actually surrendered life to Christ. Because how could God let a child of his go like that unrelentingly without any kind of consequence to that? What we see here in the text is significant. It's significant because it talks about access, sons of God. Friend, if you'd like to have that kind of access, such confidence that God indeed extends himself to you by prayer and by relationship, by care and by provision, by discipline and by correction, then you have to start first with whether or not you've actually put your faith in Jesus Christ. As it says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through but notice, if you would, the second fundamental doctrine being talked about here, continuing to verse 27, look at what it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's still on this sort of heading, if you will, about you are now sons of God. There's this fundamental reality of this baptism in the New Testament. Now, baptism in the New Testament is exactly as you already saw here earlier this morning. It is always done and seen as a practice by immersion. That's how they understood it to be done, as a symbolic representation. Those baptized into Christ had been baptized into his death and resurrection. The old self had been crucified with Christ. Paul emphasizes that those who have been plunged into Christ at their conversion are now clothed with him. Now listen to me very carefully. The physical act of baptism does nothing for your salvation. I want to say that again. The physical act of baptism does nothing for your salvation. It simply visibly illustrates, as is biblically commanded to do, 
visibly illustrates what has already been accomplished in your salvation. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not small print as long as you've been baptized. There are some people who come from a background, perhaps Church of Christ or otherwise, who've actually been taught, unless they have been baptized, let alone baptized in that particular church, they're not a Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth. Baptism, while commanded as an act of obedience, is in the very great commission to make disciples, Jesus says, baptize them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach and obey all that I commanded. Baptism is a public act of going public with your faith. It's not, not a determination of your salvation. And this is important to get clarity on because of the recognition and the reality that we need to understand the relationship of baptism to every professing Christian. If you are a Christian, under the sound of my voice this morning, and you have never been baptized, you are still a Christian, but you are a disobedient Christian. And in good conscience, you should not take the Lord's Supper, knowing that you are in disobedience to the Lord until you get right with God and get baptized first. That's just normal understandable biblical explanation as has been understood for the last 2,000 years of church history. But understand this, in your baptism, as we saw this morning with Aiden, you are testifying publicly. It was common, for example, starting in the late 1800s, early 1900s, thanks to Charles Finney with the introduction of the anxious bench, as it was called, the introduction of the opportunity to kind of recreate the blessings of the Second Great Awakening, to get people to respond visibly and publicly of their faith in Christ, to get people to do what we now have known as called the altar call. Come forward at the sound of the preaching. Give your life to Christ as a visible way to testify that I am going forward to declare my allegiance to Christ, no longer to this world. Friends, you know what the biblical altar call was? Baptism. The way you went public with your faith was you were baptized. You're like, hey, I'm not with these people anymore. I'm with these people. I don't follow my own desire in my world. I desire to follow Christ. And that's exactly what he's saying here. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is significant because you've got to recognize for a Jew and a Gentile congregation, like, well, I guess we both share that in common too. Which takes us to the second lesson you need to make sure you learn this morning. You are now united through faith in Christ. You are now united through faith in Christ. Why does God do this? Why did he put these people together? Look at what he says in verse 28. A remarkable truth here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
unremarkable truth in this text is the equality of all believers in Christ. In both the ancient world and the modern world, some people are inevitably considered more important than others. Jews consider themselves more important than non-Jewish people. Because why? Because they were God's covenant people, they would have argued. Free people tend to look down on slaves. Men were inclined to disparage and treat women badly. As human beings, we long for someone that makes us feel superior to others. We have a natural disposition in our heart to other people. Whether it be their skin color, their economics, their education, their language, their dress, we want to other people because in othering people, we legitimize our self-righteousness, our pride. They are not like us. And then the gospel comes and says, actually, you're all the same. You're all a hot mess. You might manifest it differently. You might be profoundly ungodly and worldly. You might just be committing all kinds of arrestable offenses and crimes that you should be incarcerated. Or you might be unbelievably self-righteous with your sense of morality and upstandingness. It doesn't matter. You're all jacked up. But he says, in Christ, for all who have put their faith in Christ, we all just got brought into the same family. Same problem, same solution, because of the same Savior. And now we're part of the same body. We are all together one. So commonly, race, money, and sex are often driving powers in the human life. Nationality and ethnic city have been corrupted by pride. Material blessings by greed. Sexuality has been corrupted by lust. And yet for those who are in Christ, we think differently because we think not just with what we see with our eyes. We think of what we believe and know to be true in our hearts from what God's word has declared. Listen, if you would, to the Affirmation Denial article number 17 from Together for the Gospel. It says the following. We affirm that God calls his people to display his glory in the reconciliation of the nations within the church. And that God's pleasure in this reconciliation is evident in the gathering of believers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We affirm that reconciliation is necessary because the sins of neglect, hostility, and even hatred of other image bearers due to their ethnicity, culture, or both have produced manifold injustices resulted in prejudice and discrimination between and towards all ethnic groups and perpetrated evil, especially against African Americans. We affirm that because the gospel reconciles sinners to God and to each other, individual Christians within local churches and local churches themselves have a unique opportunity and responsibility to associate in love reflecting the unity and diversity evident in the new heavens and new earth. We further affirm that Christians should cross ethnic lines to partner together in ministry. We deny that any church can accept racial, racial prejudice, discrimination, or division without betraying the gospel. 
we further deny that one's ethnic identity is superior to or erased by one's identity in Christ. That might be different than any church you've ever been a part of before, if you've ever been a part of a church before. But that's the commitment of Grace Church. The commitment of Grace Church is not to erase ethnic identity, but it's to have it become subservient to our true one identity in Christ and into humility to learn from and to love one another. We know this in the city of Miami. It doesn't matter our skin color. It isn't simply about so simple as white and black. How within different nationalities, within different countries, within different people groups, there has been racism within Cubans, within Venezuelans, within Puerto Ricans, between African Americans and Haitian Americans. The slang and the ridicule, it finds its way into our hearts coming out in elementary and middle and high school. It continues in how we, descri- how we describe each other in our stories, how we give these modifiers about who they are and how they look and how that will make sense to our story. We continue to see people as other than us. But not in the gospel, not in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see something that we have not seen in any other place. We find unity in the midst of our diversity. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book titled Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. The questions that she answers address anything from are we better off without religion? Does the Bible condone slavery? How could a loving God send people to hell? A one chapter that she writes addresses the question, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? She concludes, quote, if you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. Friends, this is profoundly important for us individually and collectively as a church. This is why we interact and conduct ourselves the way that we do. Why we pray for and love one another. Because of what it says there, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. By the way, just a sidebar comment, I feel the need to say this only because this text has been used so commonly out of context to make the following point. This is not the text that people should be using as they try to make this text that women can somehow be pastors as a support of evangelical feminism. It's a common text that sometimes gets used in It's out of context to say that. The context of the text is how we are all heirs of Abraham. You go back to chapter 3 and look at what it says in verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And again, verse 18 God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Again, verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Again, verse 29, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here's what this means. God doesn't show partiality in offering salvation. 
He offers it to anyone and everyone who would believe in his son for the forgiveness of sins. The question this morning is, do you? Or are you still an orphan? Living on the streets of this world. Having no place to call home. God is not your father. He is, but at this point, merely your judge. Would you but turn to Christ and find in him the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life? Think of the implications of this text. First of all, we have a shared story. We have a shared story. There's a, there's a shared biography that we have with one another. I want to get to know your story both because I get to know you and I get to be reminded of my story. It's what we heard earlier in Aiden's story. The details differ, but oh, there's such an overlapping reality of what is together as one. We not only have a shared story, secondly, we also have a shared identity. We are sons of God. We are in Christ. Thirdly, we also value our distinctive differences. We value our distinctive differences. Do you realize how poor of a witness a church would be, assuming it had the capacity to do so? Might not be able to if you're like in North Dakota. But do you realize how poor of a witness a church would be if a church was in a city like Miami and everybody looked just like you? That would make a lot of people appropriately kind of scratch their heads and say, what's really this church about? I mean, just think about it. If you have everybody in the church who is in the same ethnic group you're in, the same demographic you're in, the same education background you have, the, the same particular hobbies, interests you have, you're just basically have a church that's like a mirror of yourself. Now, by no means are other people who are like you in that respect wrong, no. But if it's just like you, friends, it at best is a muted impartial, incomplete witness of the bride of Christ in the church to come. We value our distinctive differences because it gives us a chance to show the manifold wisdom of God in saving sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Do you know how wonderful it is to be in ministry in the city of Miami? We're perfectly placed to take our little homogenous enclaves of people in isolation and bring us together through a common love for Christ, not built on political party or platform or position, but based upon the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we love to sing. Some of these songs that you sing might not be the instrumentation you sing or may not be the words that you remember how you used to sing when you used to sing songs. If you ever sang before you came to this church, but you realize in singing these songs, you're singing our songs together. That this common reality of the reminder of who you are in Christ. This is why we love the Lord's Supper, not just baptism. Think about the Lord's Supper as we're about to participate in here in just a few minutes. Many people gather together around one table, professing one faith and one Savior, and dwelt by one Spirit with one promised future. This is dress rehearsal for the wedding banquet. This is a reminder of what's to come. We take a small piece of bread, unleavened as it is as it was back then. We take a small serving of juice or wine, 
The bitterness of it reminds us of a body broken for us. And in these small elements, we're reminded that we have something in common. Not only a shared problem, but a shared solution, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.